All right, well, it's the Hemang Pulse. Here we are with, uh, again, Dr. Sangeetha Vinugupal, who will introduce herself in a little bit. But really, the goal here is to continue the theme of what's happening at the American Society of Hematology 2023 meeting. Well, Sangeetha, welcome to the Hemang Pulse. It's the podcast where we can get everything hematology. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for the invite. I a little bit about myself. I'm Sangeeta Venugopal. I am an assistant professor in the Division of Hematology at the University of Miami, Sylvester Cancer Center. I work with uh, Dr. Mikhail Sekeres and Dr. Justin Watts, and my focus is myeloid malignancies, in particular uh, myelodysplastic syndromes and acute myeloid leukemia. And I've had the pleasure to work with Many of the folks who are well known and have well, we're happy to have you. We're very happy to have you. I have to tell you, Sangeetha, the first ash meeting that I have ever attended in my life was in Miami. Oh wow! I never even knew that Miami. I know that hosted. it was. Yeah, believe it or not, it was smaller back then. You know, uh, for listeners, please don't take this that I'm old, but it was <laughs> actually Miami and. You're right. At the time, you know, we did have, you know, we had one in Miami. So now it's usually either Orlando or San Diego. And I'm hoping it's going to be San Diego forever, like ASCO in Chicago. So what what got you into myeloid malignancies? Like what made you interested in kind of having more of your academic career in myeloid malignancies? It started with my fellowship. I did my fellowship at Mount Sinai, Tisch Cancer Institute. And I was uh, mentored by Dr. John Mascarenas. Um, who is a leader in myeloproliferative neoplasms. And I almost did my entire, uh, we had the option of, we had 18 months clinical and 18 months research. And uh, other than the first year, I did my entire two years in myeloproliferative neoplasms. I had the pleasure to work with Dr. Hoffman and Dr. Mascarenas. And I wanted to know more about, I have an additional two years of leukemia fellowship under my belt at the MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I wanted to do this because I just wanted to get a broad overview of acute myeloid leukemia, and which I did. I was uh, delighted to work with Dr. Garcia Monero, Dr. Contagion, and Dr. Jabor. Um, yeah. Dr. So it's it's been. By the uh, way, all of whom are prior guests on the Hemang Pulse. So you're in good I'm company. Sure. You're in good I'm company. Sure. <laughs> so look. Um, I know there are thousands of abstracts that come to ASH. There's no question. Um, but the purpose of today's podcast is just to kind of get few abstracts that you kind of thought they were interesting a little bit more than others, maybe a little bit more clinically relevant, um, and they don't need to be in the order of importance, of course. So uh, everybody who is listening, viewing, in, and myself, we recognize you can't cover it all. But uh, share with us a little bit, few nuggets of things that you that caught your attention. So the first one I was uh, curious about was the it's about um, Del five Q MDS and TP fifty three mutations. So this is uh, this was uh, this is an international study from uh, presented by Dr. Montaro. Uh, being presented by Dr. Montaro, this is about the TP fifty three gene allelic state in MDS with isolated Del five Q. This is a clinical conundrum in the sense that now um, recently a paper has been published um, that Revlimid, which is a flu, uh, lenalidomide, which is approved for um, RBC 
transfusion-dependent Del5QMDS, over a period of time, the TP53 clone, if it is at a lower level, it can grow, um, the BAF can grow into a higher uh, allele burden. So this, whenever we start a patient on lenalidomide, in, if, though, if they harbor TP53 mutation, we kind of take a pause and see whether, what do we do in this case? Do we have, so this patient has a classically low-risk isolated Del5QMDS and who also has a TP53 gene mutation, which is notoriously associated with um, bad outcomes. So do we start the lenaldomide, which is uh, which is shown to increase the allele burden of TP53? So this is a clinical question that we have had for a bit. So this abstract, it actually, um, this is the first characterization of TP53 gene allelic state in isolated Del5QMDS. So it's about 20% of these patients uh, with isolated MDS harbor uh, TP53 mutations, and of which, I don't remember off the top of my head, of which uh, a fraction of them harbor multi-hit uh, TP53. I think it's about 5%, if I'm not mistaken. So multi-hit TP53 means it's a it's either the VAF or the variant LE frequency is more than 50%, or if there is a t, uh, isolated, uh, if there is an associated cytogenetic abnormality, so what they did was they um, they took the bunch of these patients. They uh, the median follow up was about five years and so, and they risk stratified these patients who are at a higher risk for AML evolution and uh, who would benefit. Maybe the next question in this would be who would benefit by stem cell transplant, especially in a lower risk patient with uh, TP53 mutation. So that question, it's not shown in the abstract, but I would be curious to know what it is. So they uh, classified into low, intermediate, and higher risk for those patients who harbor TP53 in isolated Del5QMDS. So the one with the lower risk has a prolonged, especially TP53 with, in monoallelic status, they had, um, they, they were in lower risk. So, and the AML evolution was less. So, so you could have, you could have a TP53 in a Del5Q uh, MDS and you still be low risk because mm -hmm. like in our mind, whenever we think of TP53, we think, you know, it's the highest risk. But what yes. you're saying is even within TP53, there's a subset that might be actually low risk. Yep. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and even in them, so if what they said, what they, what they gleaned was if TP53 is monoallelic, but the VAF is greater than 20%, they may have poor outcomes compared to those with less than 20% uh, VAS. And then in terms of treatment, uh, Sangeeta, we, we, we've always, correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I've had an MDS patient, but Del5Q usually use lenalidomide. If you have a TP53, you still use lenalidomide or you don't think lenalidomide works? It's, it works. But the thing is, recently papers have shown that um, as more in uh, both myeloid malignancies and for and there is another paper that has shown lenaldehyde is also being used in myeloma. So uh, people who have received lenaldehyde for myeloma over a period of time develop B cell ALL therapy related B cell ALL. 
and lenalidomide has shown to um, increase the variant allele frequency of TP53 mutation. Similarly, in myeloid malignancies, Dr. Takahashi and colleagues showed um, that lenalidomide over a period of time in myeloid malignancies can potentially lead to therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, next, another one. Um, you got us excited after the first one. I know this is uh, this is always like a clinical uh, conundrum because when they have we uh, we had patient with TP fifty three BA of forty percent that was when I was a follow with Dr Garcia Monero, and and she had low risk MDS isolated del five Q and her hemoglobin was ten point five she doesn't she was not transfusion dependent and we had this whole discussion about risk versus benefit so there is a chance that BAF could grow. And you may end up, if we treat, you may end up with uh, AML. So I think this is a very important clinical abstract uh, to be noted. Thank you for sharing. Um, Another one. Another one. This was by um, Dr. Tentori and colleagues. This was, again, an international study. Uh, Clinical and genomic-based decision support system to define the optimal timing of allogeny hematopoietic stem cell transplantation in patients with myelodysplastic syndrome. This is a very interesting uh, abstract in the sense that they use both um, IPSSM, which is the Molecular International Prognostic Scoring System, and revised IPSSR for better stratification of post-transplant outcomes. So this is a this is a decision support system that will define the optimal timing of stem cell transplant in MDS patients. So what do we use? Whether do we use the IPSSM as opposed to IPSSR? So this is, um, the cohort is about, it's a large cohort. It's about 8,000 and some patients and uh, they had a learning and a validation cohort. 65% of them was a learning cohort and 35% of them was a validation cohort. They had an interesting statistical analysis tool in which they used a Markov decision model based on micro simulation. So this micro simulation strategy, it stimulates a hypothetical randomized clinical trial where subjects are randomized to receive stem cell transplant at different time points. And the results were estimated to uh, used to estimate the average survival time over an eight-year time horizon. So what they found was very interesting uh, in that so IPSS, under an IPSSR system, patients with low-risk disease clearly benefited from a delayed transplantation policy, which we knew across the age groups. While in patients belonging to intermediate and high or very high risk categories, immediate transplantation was associated with increased uh, life expectancy regardless of the age. And when they did categorize based on IPSSM, patients with either low or moderate low risk benefit did benefit from a delayed transplant. And those belonging to moderate high, high and very high risk categories, immediate transplant was associated with improved outcomes regardless of age. And these results were confirmed in the validation cohort, attesting to the reliability and generalizability of this decision model. So the next question is which one, um, whether IPSSM upstaged or IPSSR downstage. So what was what is going on here? So in in specific, so to about nineteen percent of the patients um, who were uh, who fell under the immediate transplant group under an IPSSR based policy were 
was ben did benefit from a delayed strategy from an IPSSM-based policy. And about 21% of them who had delayed transplantation under IPSSR did benefit from an immediate transplant under an IPSSM. So what it means to us as clinicians is that we should, um, whenever possible, we should definitely integrate genomic um, markers into decision-making to define the best timing for stem cell transplant. This is very important. I, I have to ask, and I don't know if they have that in the in the abstract or it's top of your head. Are there any specific, when, when you say, um, obviously there are certain genomic markers, are there specific genomic markers that stand out as the ones that, you know what I mean? Like there are genomic markers and there are genomic markers. Right. Uh, like we so, just talked about the TP53. Is there something <laughs> specific genomics that really tells you you must do this? So it's not, it's because it's IPSSM, IPSSM actually uses uh, both IPSSR along with uh, several mutations. So nice. when we categorize the risk uh, group according to IPSSM, the first thing that say, that it uh, pops up, the it, it's a, a web calculator. So the first thing that pops yeah. up is TP53. So whether nice. it's yes or no. And is there an associated copy neutral loss of heterozygosity? And how many TP53 mutations? So it takes all that into consideration. So if I have to, um, not if I have to. So TP53 mutation, if they're wild type, I think I uh, they would fall under low risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So IPSSR that doesn't take into account any of these genomic markers. So the, the complex carrier type with three or four clonal abnormalities, that would be the one which would be... Uh, classified as higher risk in IPSSR. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. And so we just talked about the TP53 and the yeah. impact on Del5Q. You know, it's uh, it's very interesting. So that that I mean that's already that's already um, trained and validated. So that's almost ready to obviously be implemented in your decision making pertaining to the allogeneic transplant. Right. I think um, they're coming up. I think they have already validated the web calculator as well. So we use this in clinic. So when I see a patient with MDS, I have this IPSSM in my app in my phone. So I, I do this as an exercise along so that the patient can see. First, I ask them, do you want to know your risk category? So yeah. some they say yes, and some they say no. So when they say yes, then we go through this exercise of where do they fall in this you know, what's always intriguing about MDS, you always wonder how the clinical picture, like I, I'm trying to think, like, would you ever get a patient in clinic? Let's say they're not transfusion dependent yet. They have, you know, pancytopenia, but they're, you know, they're reasonably managing things okay. And you do the IPSSM and they end up having high risk. Yes. So you end up where where I think patients get confused if they look at their clinical scenario and they're not seeing that they're really high risk, but then the IPSSM. And I think the channel will be to explain to them that it's just a matter of time. This is IPS, yes. right? I mean, that's really yeah. the main issue. It is a it is a hard uh, discussion to have, especially when they're feeling so good. They're not yet transfusion right. dependent and they have their like lifestyle quality of life. And you see that they are high risk or very high risk for IPSSM. You know that it's a ticking time bomb. It's only a matter of time. This is going to yeah. go south. Okay. What else intrigued you? 
these are two really interesting, and it's really they really highlight the importance of uh, genomic and the molecular aspect of disease. Yep. Yeah, um, and and I I can imagine that they have really clinical relevance as well as therapeutic uh, implications, especially the second one in terms of timing of transplant. I I absolutely agree with you because this these are all like questions we have in the clinic, and uh, and now that we have hard evidence, we can at least tell them, okay, this is the informed decision we are going to make based on this evidence. Yeah, yeah. Anything else intrigued you? Ash twenty twenty three. Um, the other one would be the KER zero five zero. So this is an investigational. This is still a, this is in phase two trial, and it's being evaluated in patients with transfusion dependent lower risk MDS. And this is an active and receptor type 2A ligand trap. So it uh, and inhibits the TGF beta uh, superfamily ligands. So this uh, preclinical studies did show um, increased erythropoiesis as well as thrombopoiesis in and this particular drug acted on early and late stage erythropoietic and megakaryocytes progenitor cells. So based on this preclinical rationale, they um Folks from, this is, uh, the study was done in um, Europe, Australia, and Germany, and uh, they evaluated KER050 at the, this analysis is the, uh, is the RP2D dose in participants with lower risk MDS, either with ring ceroblast or without ring ceroblast from, and the primary endpoints were safety and tolerability, and secondary endpoints is modified IWG 2006, so now we are moving into 2023, but then I guess this study was conducted before. So this is IWG 2006, which was the latest we have. And in the one thing that caught my attention was um, this drug was particularly um, active or in even in those patients without ring sideroblasts. So this is, an, and in those with hemat, uh, heavy transfusion burden. So heavy transfusion burden, they defined it as uh, greater than or equal to four red blood cells in uh, four red blood cell units over a period of eight weeks. And some of them, uh, the duration of response was quite long. And uh, the hemoglobin improvement was also from about quite about three grams in one of the patients who had heavy transfusion burden and not and ring sideroblast negative MDS and they had a durable response of greater than 72 weeks. Mm. Yeah, how's that like compare? Like just uh, put like a little bit of a context. Context because some of the including yeah, me so, by the way, I'm trying to understand like is that good bad 72 weeks? Yeah, so it's the the point I'm trying to make is this is phase two, this is still early phase trial. So I don't know how this is going to play out for phase three. Because uh, recently, um, uh, Dr. Garcia Monero is presenting the commands trial final analysis in this uh, ASH as well. So that's another abstract to look for. So that's that's loose parasite in, um, in first line setting. Yeah, I would so love I would love for you to talk about this a little bit because that is an interesting. I mean, yes, uh, yeah. Tell us about this commands trial. So the commands is because uh, this drug is approved, isn't it? The, yes, uh, it is. Apply, it's approved in the first line setting. Yeah, I don't want to slaughter uh, the name of the drug. It's just about a few. Um, it's about it's few months old. Uh, so this right, is uh, right. so loose part. This was uh, this is a phase three randomized trial. And Luspatacept was uh, evaluated against uh, uh, recombinant erythropoietin 
in mm-hmm. ESC and naive patients, that's the first line setting. And uh, in transfusion dependent, lower risk MDS patients. This is being presented by Dr. Garcia Monero from MD Anderson Cancer Center. So this is the full analysis. Patients were adults and who had a lower risk MDS with the um, uh, RPI, uh, IPSSR defined lower risk MDS and um, with a serum EPO level of less than 500 and they were transfusion dependent and they were randomized on a one-to-one fashion to loose Padacept, which is being administered um, every three weeks or uh, recombinant erythropoietin, which was administered every week for uh, about 24 weeks. And this was the trial was stratified by baseline RBC transfusion burden, ring sideroblast status, and serum erythropoietin level, which is less than 200 as opposed to greater than 200. And the primary endpoint of this trial was the achievement of RBC transfusion independence lasting for 12 weeks with a concurrent mean hemoglobin increase of greater than 1.5 gram per deciliter. So about 182 patients were randomized to lose paracet and equal randomization, the arms were balanced and with a median treatment duration of about 51 weeks and 37 weeks in the EPO arm. The primary endpoint was achieved by 60% of the patients in the loose paracept arm, as opposed to 34.8% of the patients in EPO arm. And a subgroup analysis of the primary endpoint response did show that the response rates achieved with loose paracept was greater in those with SF3B1 mutation. And baseline, if the baseline EPO level was less than 200, and it's greater for ring sideroblast positive patients. So when they did look at the ring sideroblast negative patients, the response rates were comparable between both the loose paracept and the erythropoietin, uh, uh, recombinant erythropoietin arm. And the AE profile was, uh, no new AE uh, signal was detected. And this is the, this is, um, this is very exciting in the sense that this is the first drug which is approved in first-line setting in lower-risk MDS. Because until now, this was only um, recombinant erythropoietin was yeah, the first yeah. line, but that was not specific for MDS. It was more of, it was chemotherapy-induced anemia and lower-risk MDS, but it was never, we didn't have a specific approval for lower-risk MDS. So loose Padacept represents the first drug to be approved in the first line setting in lower risk MDS specifically. Now, um, Sangeeta, the, the, you mentioned in the commands trial, it was based on the IPSSR. Correct. So now we have the IPSSM. Yes. So uh, are you, I mean, does it matter? Like you, you, you still, I mean, I guess how many IPSSR that are low risk that will mm-hmm. benefit from the drug, you would still benefit if they if you use the molecular classification. I think there is an abstract that um, that looks at IPSSR and IPSSM stratification in um, commands trial as well. I think it's a okay. if I'm not mistaken, it's a poster. But there is no. I mean, you would still apply the same data on yes, the. Yes, uh, I would still apply the with. same data. The only thing is the the ring sideroblast status. So that was the one I talked about in the KER zero five zero. That's a phase two one, 
but it was not specific to ring sideroblast positivity. So it's on the N of one. So we should take it, take that with a with a pinch of salt. So N of one, how does I don't know how it is yeah. going to play out in a larger data set. Yeah. But that being said, uh, loose paracept is approved uh, regardless of the ring sideroblast status in first line setting. Is there is that when we think about MDS, are we still in you know, there's always there's this heated debate. Sometimes people say, well, don't say MDS is a pre-leukemia. It's a different disease by itself. It is, you know, which camp are you at? Is it really like, are you like, is it still a pre-leukemia when you think about when you wear your academic hat and you think of MDS? So I come from the stable of MD Anderson and Garcia Monero. So this is entirely a different disease. Yeah, he will shoot us if we say this. <laughs> yeah. This is entirely a different disease. I, I would definitely say that because... In particular, it's it's uh, the stem cells are affected more in the MDS as opposed to um, AML. I it's more of not, I have no evidence to back this this comment, and I don't I don't have the experience to say that this is going to be like true. The reason why is when we uh, do venetoclax because uh, a HMA with venetoclax is a standard of care for older patients with AML, and M and in those patients we give twenty one to twenty eight days of venetoclax. In AML, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they do tolerate it quite well. Not quite well, but at least they do, they tolerate it reasonably okay. But if uh, so, this is fourteen days. We can only do fourteen days in MDS. If we do the twenty-eight days, we are. We, I don't think we are ever going to recover any marrow from them. Very interesting. Yeah. And um, and you know, in general, right now, when you're faced with an MDS patient, what's like your frontline therapy in somebody who requires therapy is based on high risk versus low risk. Low risk, you just mentioned the new drug that was approved, potentially yes. you could use. What are you doing for high risk frontline? Great question. So the first thing is, if I have a clinical trial, that's where my patient is going to for, go for high risk MDS mm-hmm. because um, the options for high risk MDS is very scarce, in fact, non-existent other than the hypermethylating agent. So we have an oral option, which is really good because uh, the oral fixed dose combination of serosuridin and decidabin. So that's made my patients' lives quite Mm -hmm. easier because they don't have to come every day for getting an injection. So that helps. But that being said, it's only single agent. There is no combination therapies that are uh, approved for higher risk MDS. I'm looking forward for the results of forward to the results of Verona trial, which is um, which is a combination of HMA with venetoclax mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in higher risk. Yes, so um, I think Dr. Jacqueline Garcia she is pronou- uh, she is presenting the RP2D dose of uh, ASA with uh, venetoclax in higher risk MDS patients. Yeah. I'm I hope this this combination reaches the finish line. Yeah. Because there are several drugs that failed to make it. I hope so too. Uh, I know you can't cover obviously all abstracts. It's not really expected. Uh, these three were very interesting. Anything else you would like to share with listeners or viewers in terms of other abstracts or we're good here? I have so many abstracts. And the thing is, I can't really, um, it's it's unique in 
different way and and whenever we whenever i have a clinical question i go back to the ash so what was it there did i see that <laughs> that i think i vaguely remember someone presenting this particular thing so ash is fun and uh, i think it's um, i also make a point to look at the poster sessions and uh, because sometimes poster sessions hide very important data okay well, great. I mean, uh, so we're going to stick with these three abstracts, unless you have a burning abstract you'd like to share right now. This is your chance to say it. We are good. Okay. Well, Dr. Sangeeta Venugopal, really so much. Thank you for spending some time with us talking about a few data and some abstracts from the ASH 2023 meeting. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for everything. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you.